God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you've done for us that we might live. And we confess that now together in the presence of your people. Um, and so I pray, Lord, that you would set our hearts on thankfulness for what you've done. Lord, that uh, this morning we might see and hear why we can't trust in ourselves, why we shouldn't trust in ourselves, why it's fleeting to trust in ourselves, but you are strong enough to hold the center of our hopes. And so, um, Lord, make that known to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Storytelling is important, right? So it's like, I think often about the kind of storytelling that we put in front of our kids. And I think if we don't do that, you know, if, if we don't start to think, what kind of stories are my kids routinely hearing? Then, and, and what kind of stories am I even like opening myself up to on a weekly basis? Do I just jump onto Netflix myself or Amazon Prime and binge watch stuff and kind of absent-mindedly allow storytelling to shape me? Because story, storytelling has a shaping effect, right? Same with our kids, right? Do we um, sometimes allow sort of an absent-minded streaming of kids' content without being aware of the kinds of stories, right? So I'm always trying to think, you know, storytelling shapes the heart. What kind of stories do I want to be putting in front of my children? This isn't a litmus test, but, you know, one of the, story, one of the um, kinds of stories that has been helpful for me, intriguing for me, compelling for me, both um, as a reader and as a dad who wants to encourage reading and watching good things, um, is multi-generational, right? So stories that my parents' generation heard and loved and watched and then that I, when I was a child and growing up, heard and loved and watched. And that now I watch my children growing up and hearing, loving to hear and read and watch these kinds of stories. And certainly one of these stories, um, some of these stories come from the pen of the famed children author A.A. A. Milne. And in 1928... Milne wrote The House at Pooh Corner. And in chapter 5 of this book, he introduced the world to the first villain of the Winnie the Pooh franchise. Okay? The villain was known as the Baxen. And the way that we're introduced to this villain, at least in this initial book, is that Rabbit finds this letter from Christopher Robin and struggling to form the words. You know, he's got the paper in front of him and he's struggling to read it to form the words because he's a rabbit. He reads... Gone out, busy, Baxen. He's alarmed by this. It's signed Christopher Robin, you know. Alarmed by this. Alarmed by Christopher Robin's absence. He rushes back and asks the other animals if they've seen something like a spotted Baxen, a busy Baxen, some kind of creature that might have eaten or kidnapped their good friend Christopher Robin. And in the Disney movies, the Baxen becomes representative of all kinds of chaos. So he's, um, he tortures us by uh, putting holes in our socks. Uh, he's responsible for aging, theft, catching colds, scribbling in all our books when we're not looking, right? Um, all kinds of mishaps. And of course this leads all the characters in the story on this like wild and chaotic chase to find this Baskin, to figure out what happened to Christopher Robin until finally Christopher Robin shows up and explains, no, 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 no. What I wrote was that I was busy and would be back soon. So what, what do our children learn from the story? They learn 
of course, that improper exegesis leads to all kinds of chaos. <laughs> improper, improper interpretation of texts can create a lot of problems in the human life, right? Especially as it relates to purpose. We can very easily misunderstand someone's intention. Misunderstand the purpose of a letter, the purpose of a book that we've received. And in misunderstanding that, we can create a lot of, of chaos. And often the reason behind that misunderstanding, sure, I mean, on the one hand, it's partially the author's responsibility, right? An author has to speak clearly. And if they're not going to speak clearly, then they can't be super offended when they're taken out of context. On the other hand, a major part of this reason for the misinterpretation is that often we don't treat the, the author of the text the way that we would want to be treated if we were communicating. So we're communicating something. We would want someone to give the benefit of the doubt. We want someone to ask questions. But instead, we don't treat them that way, as, as Rabbit did in Pooh Corner. We um, ignore the clearly expressed purpose, and we just allow our imaginations to run wild with the purpose. And, and that's been the case over the last 2,000 years with the gospel according to John which is where we'll be as a church for the foreseeable future, by the way. So in, in various times in church history, and this is by no means the majority of the history of interpretation on John at all. These are just like small minority pockets. But um, over the last 2,000 years, various groups have used John as a means to support all kinds of wild claims. In the first 200 years of church history, it, it was used to support Gnosticism is this idea, this teaching, very bizarre, but a teaching that the world was created by a lesser being and that Jesus was a messenger from the supreme being, that you could actually access that supreme being through climbing a stairway or a ladder of secret knowledge that would free you from this sinful physical shell into the spiritual realm. Right? Very bizarre teachings at the core of it. But John was often used as a way of making those cases. It was also, it's also been used then relatedly the last couple hundred years in defense of New Ageism, arguing that John isn't speaking, you know, he, he's not speaking literally. In fact, he's speaking solely from metaphor. And he's using this metaphorical language so we should see like this spiritual reality that's present there without focusing so much on the person of Jesus. And I think there's a, an extent to which some of this springs from truth, right? Like John does write in beautiful ways, and he makes use of symbolism. So that when Nicodemus visits Jesus by night, as we'll see, right, that happens in history. Nicodemus does visit Jesus by night, but John employs this image of night, of darkness, to give us a window into what's happening into Nicodemus's, in Nicodemus's heart. So he's, he's using things that happen in this historical way, in this in a symbolic way, too, to draw attention to other things, and yet there have been those who've said, therefore, it's just all spiritual. And relatedly, then, uh, modern liberalism has used it as a way to say, like, look, John wasn't interested, therefore, in talking about Jesus in any kind of a historical way. He's interested in talking about Jesus strictly as metaphor. Um, it's also been used to make more wild claims related to some degree to those earlier Gnostic beliefs that John is speaking in some kind of a secret code, usually involves Jesus having a wife and all these things that are just totally untethered to what we find in any kind of document, but it's like 
John will often be used to make these kinds of claims. Ultimately, it's been referenced as a way to construct many different Jesuses, all making different central claims about who they are and what their um, central reason for coming is. And, and these claims have taken us in so many different directions, but all these chaotic chases ended up not having any real staying power in church history. They've all had their moment in history when it's popular to assume a particular purpose as a fringe group, that John had this particular purpose in mind when he wrote the account, but they fizzle out over time because nobody really wants to stake an academic career on a wild and temporary claim. And like the chaotic chase in Pooh Corner, all of that chaos could be avoided by paying careful attention to what was actually written. Allowing the author to actually speak for himself. Treating the author as we would want to be treated. Right? The advantage to the reader in the gospel according to John actually is that he tells us precisely what his purpose is in writing what he writes. You know, in omitting what he omits. In pleading for his readers to respond in a certain way. Like, he's very upfront with telling us, here's why I'm writing. And this is how I, I plead with you to respond. So, you know, you might be wondering... Why are we um, beginning a series through John where our intent is to preach one verse one to the end of the book, but we're beginning it here almost at the end in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. But I think this will serve us well to understand what John is desiring to do as he writes this before we open up chapter 1, verse 1. It'll help cast some vision for us as a church related to why the gospel, according to John, is just such a powerful study together to gather around, to bring, bring friends to throughout the study, to ask questions at Unfiltered Conversations. I'd invite you to come on June 19th to bring a friend who has spiritual questions or who just wants to hang out. Sorry, January. What did I say? Yeah, don't wait until June. You can come in June too. Um, January 19th. Um, and uh, come after the service in Q&A. Ask your questions there as well. If you're a guy, come hang out with me and others at the men's retreat. Ask these questions because here in John 20, 30 to 31, we learn six characteristics about this book that I think is going to be helpful to us. And again, like, just to warn us, it could be 18 months to two years before we make our way through this book and before we come back to chapter 20 again. But... I think it'll be really interesting to examine these verses at the front end before we even start the series together and then re-examine them again uh, on our way toward ending. So, um, okay, let's get started. Six characteristics of John's gospel. Let's read the whole text up front. John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So first we see, first characteristic, the subject of the gospel, right? Both grammatically the subject as we begin this sentence, but also the subject of the greater gospel. There is a principal figure on whom this account is entirely focused. Look at the first two words again. Now Jesus... Jesus. Now, you might think this goes without saying, right? But Jesus is the subject of this gospel account. 
And there may be some of us who are like, why would we waste any time talking about how Jesus is primarily in view in a gospel account in, or early in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course we know. I mean, even those people who didn't grow up in the life of the church know typically that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts related to Jesus Christ. So um, that might be something that we struggle in thinking, why do we have to even talk about that? But I want to encourage us not to simply assume it. We'll talk about this uh, a little bit more in a few minutes to a greater degree, but there's a very man-centered way that even evangelical Christians have when we read these gospel accounts in which we say, sure, yeah, it's about Jesus, you know, but it's really about me and what I need to do in applying some kind of framework that Jesus is giving me to live. I, I mean, I really mean this. I think that, that we can say we have this Christ-centered approach that when we get down to it, it's is very man-centered, applying Jesus' model for life, his model for ministry. And I, I think as a primary application of what John's trying to do, it's misguided, and I think it can be proven at the outset by noting that the subject of John's gospel is Jesus and not us. It's not us and what we need to do, but rather primarily Jesus himself. So to break down the first two words in our English Bibles, now Jesus, we can see this even clearer because what we come to find, this purpose statement that John writes here for his entire book, which is what 30 to 31 is, is tied back into what comes immediate, the context immediately before it. So this Greek word translated now this Greek, the, the word translated now is actually two Greek words, often translated now therefore, or sometimes even therefore. So it's a way of saying, as a direct result of what we just saw in the last section, therefore, I now say this to you. So um, what do we find in the last section? Next time I preach through these verses, my plan, again, it could be two years from now, but my plan at this point, as I'm scoping out the landscape, is to preach verses 24 to 31 next time we get here, because I think this is a single unit, and um, I think what we find in 30 to 31 is a natural application of what comes immediately before it. So we'll learn a little bit more of the context, but we do need to see some of it now. Um, we'll unpack it further down the road. But essentially what's happening is the disciples are gathering together behind locked doors after the death of Christ on the cross out of fear. Why are they afraid? Well, they're afraid that the scribes and Pharisees are about to send an attachment of Roman soldiers to do to them exactly what they saw happen to Jesus, right? They're known to be these 12 men who are following Jesus everywhere, and so they're afraid. They're huddled together out of fear that essentially they are next, and as they're huddling together in fear, Jesus walks through the locked doors and speaks peace to them. Thomas, however, was not in the room when this happened, right? Like he's out running errands. He's, he gets back and he hears this story. And essentially he says back to the disciples, obviously you guys saw someone, right, that you thought was Jesus or something that you thought was Jesus. But I won't believe that that was actually Jesus that you saw unless I can see him myself. Unless I can physically even feel the, the wounds in his hand inside to make sure that this is not just some kind of a vision that we're seeing. So the next time that Jesus appears to them, Thomas is present in the room. And Jesus, he challenges Thomas's doubt, but he's also gracious with him. He calls him forward 
to see him, to touch him. And so Thomas believes in Jesus by way of this resurrection appearance, but Jesus closes that section out by saying, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it's immediately following those words from Jesus that he writes, now therefore. Right? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now therefore. And that's striking because what follows now is a plea from John for the readers of this book to believe. To believe in the testimony that's included in it. To believe that which they have not seen. To believe the testimony from eyewitnesses about Jesus. And I, I think we will tragically misread this book if we approach it primarily as an instruction manual rather than an accounting. An eyewitness accounting of who this Jesus actually is and what he came to do. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, so that's the subject, Jesus himself. Secondly, second characteristic of John, the focus of the gospel. The subject of the gospel, Jesus, to now the focus of the gospel. Set your eyes again on verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So the question is, if this isn't a man-centered account where the focus is on us and what we need to do in order to impress someone, what we need to do in order for God to bless us, you know, um, what we need to do in following some model that Jesus sets out for us, if that's not the primary subject, if the primary sub subject is instead Jesus, then what's the point? Because I think a lot of people, the reason that they have a hard time with gospel-centered thinking, this idea that, like, it's primarily about Jesus and what he's done and not me and what I need to do is because we, this is our default mode. We always think in terms, like, we read the Bible primarily, it's our default in terms of, like, what do I need to do? Self-salvation projects are, like, at the core of our heart, right? So a lot of, a lot of times we can say, like, I don't, under, I don't have a way of comprehending that, so, I, you know, what's the point? What specifically about Jesus is the author focusing on? Is he focusing on some way of doing life? Jesus is an example for us. Jesus is the guy who gets pulled over on the highway on my behalf so that by his example I can avoid getting pulled over and tap the brakes a little bit, right? That's, that's I think, how if we're not careful, we can often think of and read these gospel accounts. I wrote a series of articles on the GLC blog many years ago that seeks to address this point of how do we read the gospels. Because I think it's an important one. And to be honest with you, I don't think it gets as much attention as it should get in evangelical circles. I don't. Um, these articles, I, I frame it by calling our minds back to when I was 16 years old. So the year was 1996. Okay, I just got my driver's license. This was an enormous feeling of freedom for young Jeremy Deck, right? Because I, I kind of felt like my friends and I can now go wherever we want and we can do whatever we want. And part of me, was, I was fueled in that way of thinking because I was a child of the 80s, man. And I just, I didn't have helicopter parents at all. Like, I could kind of roam about like a raccoon, you know. And so, um, and they could see signs of me around the house or whatever. They knew I lived there, but that's kind of how it was to grow up in the 80s and early 90s, right? Okay, so um, I got my driver's license and I thought I can just do, kind of go where I want, do what I want. But at about this exact same time, you know, so one of the places that I would go with my driver's license was youth group. Was involved in a youth ministry. And I remember, you know, there was this youth pastor in Holland, Michigan that our youth pastor would talk a lot about. 
And he started this movement, this grassroots movement in Holland, Michigan, that was like, he wanted his students to, instead of thinking I can do what I want, to ask a question that he wanted them to, he wanted to figure out a way that he could get them to remember this question. And the question was, what would Jesus do? And so they, in Holland, Michigan, they started printing these bracelets, WWJD, and it just erupted on the scene. Like, so like, I, in the mid-90s, like, this became more than a question. It was a fashion statement. I mean, I immediately got a WWJD bracelet, but I have to say, like, it was worn by believers and non-believers alike. It was kind of a cool thing to wear, a hippie thing to wear. Uh, I mean, like, everybody kind of got these. And uh, listen, I just want to say... The question it poses isn't an unuseful one for Christians. So don't hear me say like, Jeremy says we don't have to worry about what Jesus would do. Um, I mean, the scriptures tell us if we claim to live in him, if we claim his name, if we claim gospel belief, we must walk as Jesus did. That's what John says in one of his letters, all right? So it's very important to know that like, if we're not becoming more like Christ, if we're living like the rest of the world, then it's very possible that our Claims of gospel belief are actually invalid. It's a scary place to be, right? So we, we do need to reflect Christ. Where I think things go off the rails is when WWJD became kind of the framework for discipleship, the framework for Christian theology. The first question we ask when we come to all of the Bible, and really because it's about Jesus... The for, for sure, the way that we read the Gospels. What would Jesus do? Or where do we find that? The Gospels, right? Um, the reason I think it's a problem is because the focus on these accounts is not actually primarily on what we should do. Like, look at the text again. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. What's written? Like, for sure, John says that there's a response to this, but it's not the kind of response of, like, applying a framework. Listen, what exactly does John write when he says these are written? What does he mean by that? Does he mean th these frameworks are written? These things that Jesus has done that you have to copy are written? No, listen. This is his shorthand for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, the focus isn't on what we need to do, but rather primarily on what Jesus has already done. And so, like, I've proposed that in reading Scripture, the first question we need to ask the question we need to focus on daily, the question that leads to, a, to, to then us asking what would Jesus do properly. The primary focus, you know, and Justin Weavers and I have uh, come back to this again and again, isn't what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do th that we could never do? What Jesus did that we could never do? You know, I say in the article that WJD, TWCND bracelets probably are too long to get off the ground. Justin, to his credit, sold a version of them, a bunch of them. Um, but I think it's the right question to ask. It's the first question to ask. It's what leads to all other questions. The subject of this book is Jesus. And the focus is on the historical events of the gospel. John's purpose is to give an eyewitness account of those historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that we could see what we could never do, to be reminded that we could never do for ourselves, that he has accomplished, and from that be moved to a life that then starts to reflect Christ more. So that's the subject and the focus, but let's talk now about the author. Thirdly, third characteristic. We're going to be here for a long time, so we should know who is it that wrote this account, because if the subject is an account of these gospel events, 
Who's writing the account? Who's giving the account? And again, without splitting hairs, look at verses 30 to 31. Set your eyes there. Jesus is the subject. The focus is his life, death, and resurrection. But obviously, someone's writing the book. Certain things are not written. Certain things are written. These are written. So there's an author at work here. Who is it? Okay, so my hermeneutics professor at Trinity, the late, great Grant Osborne, he has a commentary on John. He was a man who was never without a smile on his face, a warm hand extended in your direction that would pull you into his office if you had any questions or needed any help. He wanted to help you all the time. And he, he helps us even now this morning. I mean, I can remember him saying this when we would either be studying a book of scripture in his class or preparing to, to present an outline on how we would preach a certain uh, part of scripture in his class. He would always remind us uh, that while, it has an, while this text has an earthly author, we can't and shouldn't assume our belief as Christians that this human author is actually carried along by the Holy Spirit, that God is the author, that this is the very word of God to us. And if you hear that and it's like, man, I have a really hard time swallowing that, well, come over the, the next several weeks to months because we're going to see evidence of, upon evidence of that. But the question left open in the text then is, who's the human author? Who's the one that the Holy Spirit was working through, carrying along as they wrote? Um, and uh, throughout Christian history, this has been an anonymous work that has been uh, known under the title, The Gospel According to John. Now, there are some arguments that say, like, it probably actually, pretty credible arguments that say, like, it probably wasn't actually that anonymous Probably from pretty close to the very beginning, it was being spread in the first century with this title attached to it, the gospel according to John. But regardless, this is how all of church history has kind of seen it. Why is that the case? Well, we have evidence both internally in the book of John and externally from outside of it that makes it very difficult, I think, to deny that this was written by John, the son of Zebedee. Okay, so... Uh, John the Apostle, one of the 12 disciples, is the author of the account. That evidence is strengthened by the other documents we have from John in the New Testament. He wrote three letters. He wrote the book of Revelation, which we preached through. And you're going to see a lot of similar themes. And even though he's writing in a completely different genre as he writes Revelation, we see a lot of even similar style, right? So there's a lot of reasons to account this to John, um, internal and external, as F.F. F. Bruce writes, he says the internal evidence of the gospel indicates four realities, right? So he says, this gospel, according to John, was written by a Palestinian Jew, by an eyewitness, by the disciple whom Jesus loved, and by the John of Zebedee. Understand, he's not saying four different people. He's saying a Palestinian Jew had to be the author. An eyewitness of these accounts Someone who goes by the moniker, disciple whom Jesus loved in the text, and therefore the, the strongest arguments that we find are related to John himself. We're going to see this internal evidence as we unpack it in weeks ahead. I don't have to go back in and show these now. Um, but it's strengthened even more by the external evidence. The earliest church fathers not only assume that John is the author, but they make statements of authority related to his authorship, which is why so many people say it probably wasn't absent this title at least not for very long, and that, that needs to be 
considered. Um, some of these early church fathers are just one generation removed from him. Polycarp himself claimed to have been discipled by John, right? John wrote a lot of what he wrote probably in the late first century. So um, this, this collides very easily with early church history. So we have a lot of reasons. We're on solid ground to embrace the strong internal evidence uh, and traditional evidence here despite recent attempts to undermine this kind of thing. And typically what you hear is like across the gospels, not just John, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, these disciples, they would have come out of poverty. I mean, these are fishermen. These are sons of poor people who lack basic level education. And so probably what happened is this is written by somebody outside of Palestine many years after these events took place, native Greek speakers. But I think not only are these claims baseless, like not only does the majority of the internal and external evidence work against these claims, but I also think they're kind of snobbish, if we're honest. Like if we're not real careful, we can get kind of arrogant with these claims because we all know stories of men like Alexander Hamilton, who come out of poverty, you know, who prior to having any formal education himself is reading and writing at a level beyond what most of us would ever write at, right? Um, we all know these stories of, of men who lack basic education, who themselves become extraordinary students, who eventually go on to pen amazing works. And in addition, uh, as a young Palestinian Jew, John would have been a student in the synagogue. He would have learned how to read and how to write. The idea that even if he was a student, John couldn't have learned to read and write, write like this because it is beautiful writing, but it's speculative at best and it's against the evidence and I think it's, it's arrogance at worst. And, and we'll start seeing specific examples of this evidence as we move forward in John, okay? So the subject, Jesus, the focus, the gospel events of his life, death, and resurrection. The author is John, an eyewitness of these events. Who's he writing to? This is where we see now, fourthly, the audience or recipients of this gospel. Who's the audience? Verse 31, but these are written so that you... So that you, so John has a specific reader in mind. There is a you here. Who is it? Well, again, not just assuming a foundational element of Christian doctrine. The you here is, to an extent, it's all of us. You know, like the book, authored by John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing what he wrote, is writing this so that readers of this, who have this account in front of them, might know the purpose behind his writing, might respond in the way that John is pleading for them to respond. And that includes all of us. It includes our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. You know, for the last couple hundred years, there's been a, a strong history in the West of giving copies of the gospel according to John to friends and, and students at college colleges across the West, right, um, where it's been distributed as sort of a, a first introduction, uh, an initial introduction into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so the question is like, you know, like it is really good to give to friends. I, I would encourage it. It's one of the reasons why we're, we're reading through this together. Um, but at least, you know, why John, right? Like at least part of the reason is because John has a specific you in mind here. He has a specific audience in mind. Like, what, why typically do we not give Mark or Matthew, for instance, a way to non-believing friends? Why is it mostly John? Am I saying that the Holy Spirit can't use Mark and Matthew to bring someone evangelistically to faith? No, I'm not saying that, but why do we sort of know intuitively after reading the gospel according to John that, no, this one's going to, 
it's going to meet, I think, in a lot of ways where my non-believing friends are at. I think it is because he has this, this specific person in mind. I don't think John is actually writing this to a church the way that you know, Mark, I think, was writing his gospel account primarily to a church in Rome. I don't think John is writing primarily to Christians, though because of what we find in John, it's essential for Christians to come back to it again and again and again, and we'll get to that in a bit. But John, I think, is writing most likely both to Jews and to spiritually seeking Greeks who are spread abroad, who've read through their Old Testaments before, like perhaps they have some kind of a background in which they know some of these theological realities, but they don't know Jesus Christ. And there's this, um, you read through Acts, there's this God-fearing Greek title that you see throughout. There are these God-fearing Greeks, these Greek men who have, they grew up under paganism, Greek men and women who grew up under paganism, and they realize there has to be something more than this, and they're drawn into these Hebrew scriptures to learn about the God of the Bible and Acts calls them these God-fearing Greeks. They're, they're certainly part of John's audience. But this is, I think, where John's targeting. Unbelievers. Spiritually seeking unbelievers. In other words, I think in a primary way, this book was written for evangelism, which leads us fifthly into the purpose that John is writing to these people. What's the, fifthly then, the purpose? So the audience, non-believers, right? Specifically, Jews and God-fearing Greeks scattered abroad. That they might believe, right? What's the purpose of the gospel? Let's look at the whole thing again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Two quick observations here. First, we can see that John, you know, he's not just collecting a bunch of eyewitness stories, you know. Uh, He's and and hoping that we can kind of make sense of the stories. Like, oh yeah, here's another thing. Oh yeah, then then he did this, right? Like, that's not how John's writing this. He's not taking an approach where, like, a shotgun approach, where he's just kind of unloading and taking shots and hoping that it hits something. He's being very precise. He tells us here that there are things that he's omitted and there are things that he's included. You know, and then he tells us why he's put some of the things in the text that he's put in there and why he left some of the things out. He tells us some of these things were left out and some of these things were included so that, like just in case you're wondering, like why isn't this in the scriptures, so that. And that's important because one of the big criticisms of, of John's authenticity is that there are these big things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have in their gospel accounts. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are known as the synoptic gospels, they share a lot of the same information. John's written very differently, right? And there are some, some things that, that are not included. And so people say, well, look at the transfiguration. That's usually the biggest example that people give. They say, um, here you have Jesus revealing his glory to three of the disciples on a mountainside in a way that made them want to stay there. Like, and John is one of these three people. So like, if John was going to write a gospel account, he'd include the transfiguration. They say, what about the Lord's table? Much of the discourse that John includes, you know, in uh, 14 through 17, what have happened at this event of the Lord's table with John himself seated at the table? So um, maybe he didn't author it. Because these are major events that he doesn't include in these things. Some have suggested. The problem with that is, he tells us. He tells us it's exactly what he did. 
you know? At the end of the book, like, he makes it very plain. He says, essentially, there's a ton of stuff that went down. And if I included fact after fact or story after story, it might derail me from the purpose that I'm writing. Like, I'm trying to be real intentional here. And in fact, just to make sure we understand, like, sometimes I read John and I'm like, you get to the end of John and I think, is he feeling a little self-conscious that there are things he didn't include? Because here's the last two verses. Just, you can flip over chapter 21. The last two verses of the entire gospel. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Like, what do you want from me, John says. I could have included everything. We could have gone on forever. You know, this could have been as long as one of Jeremy's sermons, but nobody wants that. And here he is one chapter earlier saying, like, I left some stuff out, yeah, but I did it intentionally. I included what I included because those things best fit my purpose. But guys, you still have people saying, John didn't write it because he didn't include everything. It's bananas. And in any case, what was the purpose then for him including what he includes? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that you might believe. Like this has to do so that you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This has to do with the very identity of Jesus himself and the very identity Maybe even more accurately, the very identity of the one who was promised from the very beginning. The identity of that guy, you know. And I have to, because I have to say, this verse can also be, and I think the evidence is strongly in, in favor of saying that it should be translated this way. So that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus. So that you may believe that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is promised is Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, like we said last week, what's the primary question that the people of God have as Zechariah comes to a close? Like, great news that, that the Lord promised this promised shoot, this one who is to come. But who is he? Right? The Jews who are now scattered abroad, the God-fearing Greeks, the spiritually seeking people who've made their way into the synagogue to learn the Hebrew Scriptures, what have they heard? They know that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom God's promised from the very beginning will one day come. And, and in the first century, we talked about this at GLC before, but like the world was at, especially first century Palestine, it's at this, this like fever pitch of messianic expectation. Like things are going crazy in Jerusalem out of this, God's going to send the one, right? The question was, who is he? Who is the Christ? And John says that's precisely why he wrote this. And in our families, our neighborhoods, our friendship circles, our workplaces, we might hear questions about, I mean, who or what will save me? You know, like what has the power to actually make my heart right? Who has the power to do that? Who has the power to stand at the center of my life? Who's able to bear the weight of being called the hope of my heart? Some earthly relationship? John's purpose in writing this is to answer. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, these are questions of identity, not kind. In other words, the question, who is Christ, should not be taken here to mean what kind of Christ are you talking about. But so you, so you claim to know who the Christ is? Prove it then. 
Who is he? Do you claim to know who the Savior is? you claim to know what can stand at the center of my heart? Prove it. That's why John writes. So the subject is Jesus. The focus is his life, death, and resurrection. The author is, is John. The primary audience are the spiritually seeking. But also we're the audience, and we're going to talk more about that too. The church is the audience too. And the purpose the author has in mind is to show us that one that all of us have been waiting for, like the one that brings ultimate hope to our hearts is Jesus himself. But why is that purpose so important? Like, why does it matter that Jesus is the Christ? Here's where we finally see the central claim of the gospel. And this is the central claim. We'll see it repeated again and again and again throughout John. Look at the rest of verse 31. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So the, the kind of belief that John's describing here is a yielding, a trust, a satisfaction in Jesus, a trusting in other words, for him to do what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why, that's, that's what he means by belief. It's like a surrender of the idea that I can save myself. And it's a belief instead in his power rather than my power, right? And so that's why, though the book is prime, the primary aim of the book is evangelism. I really believe that. It also does the work of sanctifying the believer to become more and more like Christ. You know, we're planting a church for non-believers. We really, one of the, the main reasons, the, the primary reason that we planted was to engage with our non-believing friends and neighbors and co-workers. And so some of the struggle sometimes internally that, that people have is, well, but if my church life is about evangelism, if my church life is about sharing the gospel, then we're always talking about this gospel, but when do we ever get around to my discipleship? And what we find in the scriptures is, that's a false dichotomy because the same gospel that our non-believing friends and neighbors and co-workers need to believe and find salvation is the exact same message, the exact same gospel, the exact same thing that you need to hear all the time to put the same impulses to death continually and find life in Christ. And actually this phrase, so that you may believe, interestingly enough, it can grammatically mean both so that you might come to faith, come to belief, and it can mean it can be, be translated so that you may continue in faith, continue believing. And at the end of the day, we don't have to choose. In other words, John's purpose statement is the same as ours at Gospel Life Church. A gospel that brings life. A gospel that brings spiritual life to those who are apart from Christ as they go from death to life, right? As they come to faith for the first time, throwing themselves on the mercies of God found at the cross of Christ. And it's a gospel life that continues to grow in the Christian life as we apply that gospel to all of life, continually realizing our need to throw ourselves on the mercies of God found at the cross of Christ. The same exact thing. This purpose statement from John essentially is shorthand for his entire theology in the same way as it is for us at GLC, our belief that the same gospel we proclaim for evangelism is also our desperate need as believers. That's at the center of all that we do here. And so in many ways, John is a strategic and significant book for us together as a young church. 
a young congregation with a, with a very real desire and a primary vision kind of desire to see our friends, neighbors, and coworkers come to faith in Christ. Why? Because he offers life. You know, we, we planted this church out of the conviction that we were called to meaningfully and relationally engage with even the most skeptical people, non-believing people. That we were called to be a church for the unchurched and that same vision continues to be our aspiration at Gospel Life Church today, right now. If you're here this morning, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus. You're not sure what you think of all this, or you're sure what you think of it. You're sure that you don't believe, but you're willing to listen with an open mind and just learn more about what Christians think about what these Gospels teach. John's simple invitation would just be, come and see. Come and hear. Hear the voice of Jesus. Come and see for yourself. You know, like, engage with us. Ask tough questions during the Q&A. Come hang out with us at the men's retreat. Whatever, like, go to, go to the women's Bible study. Like, express your doubts openly. Come and see. If you're here and you're a believer, two things. I think there's... We come and see and we hear, and, and much like the disciples that will, will be in our view in just a couple, of, in just a few weeks, we'll come and see and we'll see how much Jesus means to us, and so we'll go and tell, right? Like, there's this, like, if you're a believer, go and tell others to come and see. Like, if, if you're a believer, invite others to this. Hand out copies of the gospel according to John. Like, offer to study it alongside of a friend, but even more to the point, John's invitation to you is to do the exact same thing as your non-believing friend because you have the exact same need for the exact same gospel. Come and see. Come and see your Savior. And what he has done for you that you might continue in the faith. Like, what's God's answer to this problem of always wanting to make this about me? You know, I've always wanted to read the Gospels and make it about what I need to do in order for God to bless me. Like, implementing some kind of model or whatever, rather than what he's done. God's answer to this problem of moralism is to show us repeatedly that apart from his work, we're all on the same level playing field of just like, as we talked about before, happily strolling right into the slaughterhouse. Like, we don't naturally want to hear from the Lord. And yet, here he is coming into human history that we might hear him and, and know his voice and, and follow him. And so, his answer is to tell us we're, we're all of the same need. And he provides a great answer to that need at the cross, which is why we come to the table every week, right? Which is why we don't assume the gospel. We come to the table every week because here at the table we see that it was only by this means, the means that we'll see in John of Christ's body broken and his blood shed so that we might know him, right? That we might come to faith and that we might continue to believe, continue to apply that same gospel to all of life. So if you are here this morning and you're a skeptic, um, I invite you to participate in this meal by observing, asking questions. Why, why do Christians uh, drink this uh, juice or wine and, and um, eat this bread or, or cracker every week? What does it symbolize? Like, feel free to ask those in our midst. Um, but this meal is for believers. If you're here and you confess that gospel of Christ doing for you what you could never do for yourself so that you might know him, this meal is for you. I invite you to come forward, take these elements back to your seat that we might once again proclaim it 
to one another's hearts.